Are you struggling to lose weight and keep it off? Tired of wasting time and money on starvation diets that lead to more frustration and stress? If there was a weight loss solution that could actually work for you, would you try it? Then head to Golo.com. I'm Steve. I lost 138 pounds in nine months on Golo. I'm Amber. I've lost 128 pounds with Golo taking release. If you're ready to take back control of your life, head to Golo.com now and see how Golo can work for you. That's G-O-L-O.com. My sleep is way better. My inflammation has gone way down. Golo saved my life. I was way overweight. That's what sent me down the path. I wanted to make sure and live for my kid. I have literally tried everything. I was on the verge of getting gastric bypass surgery, and I saw the Golo commercial, and it was the last thing I tried because it worked. Join over 2 million people who have found a better way to lose weight with Golo. Your healthier and happier life begins at Golo.com. That's G-O-L-O.com. Again, G-O-L-O.com. We made this. Ladies and gentlemen, it was a cold-blooded, premeditated murder. Hi everyone, welcome to another special episode of Red and Buried Podcast with myself, Sarah. And Frankie. And we're joined by very special guest today, Elizabeth Haynes. Um, So, Elizabeth, um, I don't know if people remember from a few episodes ago, was one of the actually quite few authors on my five-star recommended reads list. So, really, really excited to have you with us. Thank you very much. Yeah, Um, bless you, Elizabeth, for falling prey to my tweets, being like subtly, (laughs) hey! (laughs) It wasn't so much that. It was, well, the the tweet alerted me, but I obviously listened to the podcast and I listened to your interview and Chris Whitaker and I thought, oh, hey, that sounds like a really good, fun podcast. (laughs) And then I promised to be nicer to you than you were to Chris. I heard you say something like, Sarah I think you said oh um Elizabeth Haynes into the darkest corner she'd be good to get on the podcast or something like that yeah it was like yes please please amazing the podcast yeah it all fell into place (laughs) not to not to take away from Sarah but actually it was me because (laughs) when I read into the darkest corner I obviously I started following you on Twitter straight away because uh, yeah we'll talk about how much we love it in a minute because it's brilliant and everything you write is great um see I'm already being way nicer to you than I am to Chris yeah but uh yeah I was just and then I think you followed me back so when we were talking about it I started like oh we can get get Elizabeth involved because yeah I have so many questions for you and yeah really excited to have you here so thank you so much for your time yeah thank you for having me pleasure so um we obviously we've already said we love you and we talk about your books already but for the listener who may not have heard of your amazing books for a start go and educate yourself straight away but I also give you a little bit of a background I've written a little bio about Elizabeth that I'll read out just and Elizabeth please correct me if any of this is incorrect or out of date (laughs) um the internet is not as reliable as it should be my best speaking voice Elizabeth Haynes grew up in Seaford, East Sussex, and studied English, German, and art history at Leicester University. Her writing is partly inspired by her work as a police intelligence analyst in Kent. She was encouraged to submit her debut novel, Into the Darkest Corner, following a creative writing course at West Dean College and was published by Myriad Editions in February 2011. Elizabeth Haynes won the Amazon UK 2011 Rising Star Award and Into the Darkest Corner was Amazon UK's Book of the Year and was featured on Channel 4's TV Book Club. She's written a slew of other books, including Under a Silent Moon and Behind Closed Doors, which are the start of the police procedural thriller series featuring the Briarstone major crime team. Her books are now published in more than 30 countries around the world and in over 20 languages, with more due for her release. Ooh, release. Her latest book, Mew Me in the Sea, was released in February 2021 and is bloody brilliant. I added that <laughs> because I finished it and I absolutely loved it. So was, how was that as a bio? That was perfect. Honestly, it makes you realise what a complete journey it's been, doesn't it? When you when you think, you know, 10, 10 11 years now. Wow. Um, and yeah, what a what a roller coaster. Incredibly impressive achievements right from the start. So yeah, I'm still blown away. Still have to pinch myself, you know, that that, that's kind of my life. It sounds it sounds incredible, doesn't it? But yeah, that's that's me. Wow, it was quite incredible. interesting because I am um, obviously I so I rate my books on Goodreads like most people do. Um, so when we were discussing five star reads previously, I just went back and skimmed the list and I read Into the Darkest Corner years and years ago. 
and didn't really remember much about it. So I actually reread it at the weekend. And I went into it thinking I've read a hell of a lot of crime thriller books since then. Is it that it was early on in my reading career? That's not the right word. Um, but it turns out it wasn't. I'm not just saying that. And um, Frankie and I were talking about it earlier, actually. And I think a lot of it is you write really amazing characters. And that's what yes. kind of puts it a step above a lot of the other very formulaic crime novels I read, I suppose. Oh, thank you. That's good to hear. <laughs> I, complete, I completely agree because yeah, obviously Sarah messaged me saying, oh, yeah, I reread Into Darkest Corner. It's so good. Like, it's even better than I remembered. And I said, oh, I, I just finished last week, You, Me and the Sea. And I loved it, even though it's not a crime book, which we can talk about in a minute. But you are so good at characters. Like, I, I think I, I messaged you after I finished reading it to say I miss Rachel and Fraser already because I really love them. Like, I really got to know them and they're so real the way you write them. Um, I miss them, too. I, I always have this with books is before I get into the next book, I always seem to spend a while carrying on with the story uh, you know there's always a few extra scenes that well quite a lot of extra scenes because I can't bear to leave them alone and of course there's no plot left because the plot's finished so really it gets very boring and it gets it ends up being scenes about like washing up and getting a job <laughs> at the co-op and things like that <laughs> and then I get bored and I move on to a new plot so yeah I, I find it hard to leave them behind as well. Oh, it must be it must be tough because you're like you're basically missing someone you're mourning a loss of someone that never actually existed but they've been so real to you for, for ages presumably how long do you typically take when you write your books I know you do we could talk about NaNoWriMo um, in a minute but how often does how long does it take you typically to write one of your books um probably the first draft if I was concentrating and going at it properly the first draft would be about six weeks or so wow. and then yeah wow. but, then, but then editing takes a year at least it's rewriting and rewriting so I I don't plan or plot or anything like that otherwise I get bored um, and there's no point carrying on so I have to go into each story not knowing what's going to happen and the result of that is massive plot holes and you know things that don't work and oh accidentally killed the wrong character that's happened more than once um, <laughs> amazing yeah um and in in the in the case of Yumi and the Sea, that started out as a crime story. There was a body, and then I realised that actually the love story was probably better than the crime story, and I had to resurrect the body and take all the police stuff. Pick <laughs> it back and, up. <laughs> yeah, so it took uh, it it the editing process takes a long, long time for me. So probably, I mean, it it takes a good year to write a book, but the writing, the first draft of it, is quick. Wow, six That's weeks impressive. Yeah, I can't think of anything I've achieved in six weeks, to be honest, let alone a novel. <laughs> Yeah, that's incredibly impressive. Well, seeing as we're talking about you in the scene, you've already said that you intended it to be a crime story, which is really interesting. Um, how yeah. did so as you were writing it, you suddenly just felt more into the love aspect of it? Well, to be fair, it was my lovely editor, Kansda, who who allowed me the privilege of 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 doing that because you know. Not every writer has has um, a publisher who is so open to trying new things. And I've been incredibly lucky with mine because they've let me do all sorts, you know, historical and um, and standalones and now take out the crime altogether. And you wouldn't get that with every publisher. So I, I recognise it's a privilege. So in the in the story of Yumi and the Sea, which is set on an isolated Scottish island, there is a, a, a loch in the middle of this island, which is this sort of really quite scary place. It's got kind of black granite walls rising out of the water. And as a result, it doesn't really reflect the sky. So it's like this black, deep, deep loch. And not very big, but very, very deep and very kind of scary place. And I visited the Isle of May, which is loosely what my island looks like in my head. And they have a lot like that there. And um, the, the nature reserve manager, who was very kindly indulging all my questions <laughs> of what it's like to live there, told me a story about this ecologist who'd been on the island and had wanted a, a seal skeleton to study. And they happened to have a dead seal that had washed up on the beach, as they sometimes do. And they, they put this seal into kind of a net bag thing and put it in the loch. And within a few weeks, it was picked clean. And oh, it was just God. bones. Maybe it was a few bit more than a few weeks. But anyway, whatever was in this loch had picked it clean and she had her seal skeleton. And instantly, my, my writer's brain was going, oh, hello. Well, that's where I'm going to put the body then. 
and um I I got the plot and I I got the body and I knew what was going to happen and then there were all sorts of horrible unresolved bits because I really wanted Fraser and Rachel to be happy and if Fraser had been in some way responsible for a body being in the loch not giving anything away but if that had, were to have been the case then clearly he would at some point have to either face some sort of justice or admit to Rachel what had happened or whatever and then they couldn't be together and it would be sad and um you know my editor and I were talking over the plot and she said well you've got a love story and you've got a crime story and you can't have both in this case because they don't work very well together so you're gonna have to pick which one and I said which one would you go for and she said definitely the love story so I had to raise the body from the dead and you know the loch's still there and it's kind of just a bit of a red herring because everybody's expecting something horrible to happen in it and it never does (laughs) well it it was worth the necromancy because it's a really (laughs) story um it was worth bringing that to the surface and you know along with the body and I think it's still got the dark elements to it though that's one thing to say about it for anyone Mm. listening thinking oh it's not really a crime story there is still crime and darkness and all sorts of of, uh, difficult issues within it still so there's yes. some, some grit to it if uh, people need that but I actually really uh, for someone that reads a lot of crime thrillers I actually really enjoyed that it didn't have all the kind of typical crime tropes in it because it was nice to have a break and actually enjoy watching this love story unfold um, I'm glad I'm glad yeah. it is you're right it is a gritty old love story really it's not all kind of smooth sailing for them I suppose love stories aren't really otherwise otherwise they'd be very boring um, yeah. but now I, d- I did quite like the idea of having some sort of you know happyish ending for a change <laughs> yeah it's nice yeah. to see yeah I don't think I can remember the last time I read a book with a happy ending to be honest <laughs> clearly I need I, to get on to this <laughs> I thought you were about to say I can't remember the last time I was happy <laughs> concerning I try like for help mid-podcast <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that offline Sarah yeah <laughs> after um I also one last thing I want to ask about this while we're talking about it because you mentioned already about the setting and things but talk to me about the birds because they're kind of the extra characters that exist within this book do you have an interest in this is for my books I love birds do you have an interest in birds in particular or is it just part no not not especially yeah no Um, you've crushed Frankie (laughs) I've sort of developed a bit more of an interest in them but I think uh you know the the Basically, the story is that Rachel gets this unexpected opportunity to run the bird observatory on this remote Scottish island. And she's sort of escaping from a bit of a horrible situation and needs a few months to forget about her life. So she takes up this job managing the bird observatory, which is just basically catering for bird watchers. And as a result, she she washes up on this windswept island where there are you know, there's a a nature reserve manager and hundreds of thousands of seabirds that will peck at you and poop on your head and do all sorts of, you can trip over them and all sorts. Anyway, the birds are kind of a necessary part of the story, really. And I found myself reading up and researching as as you're really supposed to do and found all sorts of fascinating facts about seabirds that just kind of had to get included when when you get a little gem like that like the the pointy eggs thing which I had no idea about so the, the seabirds you know they they lay their eggs on these little cliff ledges and often they don't even have nests proper nests so you know Rachel's asking how come the the eggs don't roll off the edge of the the cliff and the answer to that is they're particularly pointed so if they roll they roll around in a little circle and I just thought I was so clever that's gonna have to go in <laughs> you basically wrote the ideal book for Frankie by the sounds of it <laughs> yeah I, I loved it it was fantastic well, well I, I'm, I'm not like super into birds or anything I'm still very cool but um I just you know, I really enjoyed those details and particularly about the puffins and things like that I, really I think you have to go on a trip to the Isle of May because you can you can do that you can get a like a boat trip for a couple of hours out there just you know don't do what I did and make the mistake of discovering this amazing plot for a book in like the middle of August and then suddenly realizing that the seabird season is about to come to an end and they stop running the boat trips the first week in September so I had to do this kind of crazy dash from North Norfolk up to the Isle of May and hope that the tides and the weather wasn't against me so that I didn't have a complete wasted trip. Went over to the Isle of May and of course by that stage all the puffins had gone there was nothing there. Oh, no. It was completely oh, 
completely devoid of seabirds. There was a gannet or two and a cormorant. And then it was before the seal pupping season as well. So we didn't even see any seals, but they have loads of those. But yeah, if you're going to go, um, April, May, June is the best time. You, you can't move for puffins, apparently. Oh, okay. we need to well, go back now. Go back yeah. and see it now that you've finished the book. <laughs> Let's all meet up there and do a, a weekend of bird watching. Yeah. <laughs> what a dream. The one thing that I found really fascinating was I got to the end of Into the Darkest Corner and read the blurb that they have afterwards. I think there were some questions and answers and stuff. And the bit that really jumped out at me was that you initially drafted it. I'm assuming it as part of NaNoWriMo. I probably yeah. butchered the pronunciation of that, which I used to, well, I attempted it many years and never got further than about 500 words personally. Um, but that's, yeah, that was really amazing because it's such, I think because it's such an accessible thing, I suppose, that a lot of people I know have, have done and yeah. never made anything of. Um, yeah, that's what, it's, what I, sort I'm, of what I'm a big about. fan of Nano. So NaNoWriMo, um, for anyone that's listening that's never heard of it before, what have you been doing with your life? <laughs> yeah. um, it's um, an annual challenge to write 50,000 words in the month of November. And I've done it since every year since 2005. Oh, and um, I still do it every year. And all of my books, apart from Harriet, um, were written during NaNoWriMo. So not just the first amazing. one. Amazing. Um, and it's it's great. I mean, it's, it's very accessible. The whole idea is you just uh, get out of your own way and just write for fun. It's not any any sort of aspirations to publication or anything. You know, obviously you can because I did. It's possible. Yeah. Um, but it's not part of it. It's just the idea of writing for fun and trying to write a novel. And with 30 days, only 30 days out of your life, you know, you can put other things aside, hopefully, and give it a go. And even if you end up with 500 words, 50 words, you know, 10,000 words, it's, it's more words than you would have had otherwise. So it's worth yeah. giving it a go, I think. And I've, I've loved it. I've been very grateful that I, I was introduced to it, really, because I think my entire career is thanks to NaNoWriMo. I'm guessing it's... um. I might be putting words in your mouth to tell me if if I am. I'm guessing it's slightly freeing in a way because there's such a focus on the word count. I think you almost just have to sit and get everything down. You're not constantly getting in your head and thinking, oh, I could rephrase that. It's almost like, no, I need to move on to the next bit. So I suppose it stops you from self-editing too much as you go. Definitely. There isn't time for any editing, self-editing. Um, and yeah. it's, it is, you're right, it's tremendously freeing and you know, you, you would think, oh, well, what's the point? Because I'm just going to end up with 50,000 words of absolute rubbish. But it's amazing how a lot of it is rubbish. Of course it is. But then the first draft of anything is rubbish. Even if you take a longer time to write it, there's still going to be lots of rubbish in there. Um, but what seems to happen, because you've got the momentum of the story carrying you forward and you have the whole story sort of in your head at the same time because you're writing every day if you can and, and keeping going and keeping going, is that as if by magic, you get some really good stuff in there, you know, you get, yeah. it, it becomes, it's such fun as well that I think that carries you over. And I think when you're writing and it's fun writing, then I think that's good writing automatically. Yeah, and there's a camaraderie in it as well because so many other people are doing it, I suppose. Um, do you come up with all of the plot or as much of the plot as possible ahead of time or do you see where it takes you as you're going along? I usually have an idea some point before November and I think, oh, yeah, that'll, that'll do for November. And then I try not to overthink it because if I overthink it or write anything down or prepare too much, I get bored. So yeah. I have to kind of keep that little nugget safe and locked up until November and then there's usually the first week where I'm busy thinking I wish I'd planned more because yeah. I don't know what's yeah. happening it's all going haywire and characters are misbehaving and sitting around waiting for me to come up with a plot you know and then by kind of week two usually it sort of starts to flow and uh yeah but I I don't I don't I, I just have an idea at some point and think oh that will do and sometimes the, it's the wrong idea and after a few days I think no no this is not going anywhere but I know what is and uh, I'll switch plots in the middle of a of a day and then try something else instead so they're not always successful you know sorry I, I just wanted to make this point is I've got currently I think eight unfinished projects that usually have started in NaNoWriMo and some of them are massive I mean 
I've got the third book in the Bryastone series is 80,000 words and I've never finished it and never done it it's just sitting there and various others have got the sequel to Into the Darkest Corner at 50,000 words well how, how much do we have to pay you for yes. that? how do we get that it's you bring it when we go bird watching of, of nothing very much happening though this is the problem and I had the idea of where it would go but it, it, it took a long time for the plot to kick off and I got bored so sorry. <laughs> it was quite hard though to let go of something that you've put so much thought and time and effort into I, I don't know that I personally could step back and go actually this isn't working it's not very good I think I'd plow on and come up with something I, really I really awful. suffer from shiny thing syndrome though that's the problem <laughs> that's probably beneficial in this case though I would imagine and also I'll take those extra 50,000 words just to see like see how Catherine's doing just like to check in and see if she's all right because yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Awesome. good and bad good and bad you know what it's like <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know oh. if I can handle it the stress no. awful um, Speaking about writing, like what do you enjoy most about the writing process and what do you enjoy least about it, if you had to pick? I think most, NaNoWriMo is always good fun for me. I mean, I've I've found it a little bit harder in recent years because there's the, the thought of what lies ahead in the editing process. But actually, that first draft is always great, um, not because you write for yourself there's no point in writing thinking oh this is going to be the next one that's going to hit the shelves because as as you know eight of mine haven't so there's no there's no guarantee that's going to happen at all so you're writing for yourself you're writing what you want to read and that bit is always great and then the worst thing is what happens next when you realize you've got a year of going over and over and over it again and again and trying to pick out all the things that don't work and yeah editing is is work for me I don't like it writing is fun and editing is work because you just you basically have to go back and rip everything to shreds right in theory or answer questions about it or think more about parts you're like oh, it's just it's perfect as it is just take it away or I'm I'm not very good at spotting what's wrong with a book but I know when something isn't working I just can't find it so actually I need a lot of editorial help very early on and my editors have always read the first draft even in its you know raw state with you know subplots that don't go anywhere and characters that don't work and everything else because I'm so bad at editing my own stuff I just can't see what's wrong with it I just know it's horrible so my lovely editors have always kind of gone in that early stage and done the the massive suggestions like for example with Into the Darkest Corner one of the earliest things they they said to me um my lovely editor Vicky then said um, we really like the relationship with Stuart, not giving anything away. But in the early draft, they got together in the middle of the book, kind of around Christmas time. You know, when she goes and has Christmas lunch with him, that yeah. was kind of when they got together. And after that, they were just kind of happy together for the rest of the book. And Vicky said, we think it would be better if they didn't get together until the end of the book. And um, so I changed that thinking, oh, I can't see how that's going to work. But anyway, I might as well give it a go. And of course, it, it made the book so much better because, you know, um, without giving anything away, well, probably I'm giving stuff away now. Sorry if you haven't. That's OK. We have big spoilers on every episode. You're oh, fine. Yeah, you're all good. You're it, all good. I think a lot of people have said to me, oh, I thought Stuart was going to turn out to be a wrong one. I was terrified the whole time reading it both times. Apparently, I've got no memory that he was going to be a real bad yeah. guy. But now he's lovely, thankfully. It's such um, a relief, yeah. Yeah, but that, that only came about because of that editorial decision, which I would have never come up with in a million years because I like getting people together really early on, you know. Yeah, you write, you, this is a weird sentence, you write good men. Like, <laughs> I think I you write you good men. Sound good. I write good sex then, I've had that. And that too, yeah, yeah, that too. <laughs> Definitely yeah. in You, Me and the Sea. I enjoyed that very much, thank you. Um, Brace yourselves, everybody. It's, it's quite <laughs> <laughs> Very, oh, I, and I personally, as someone that is, uh, a, a, I don't know how where I'm going with this. Actually, with the sentence, feel that bad because uh, parents listen. Um, but I, I really enjoyed it, and I think yeah, as a Fraser, very, very good man writing, enjoyed that very much. So thank you. Thank did you. you base it on anyone in particular, or do you just pull out traits of various? Oh well, now here's the thing. Just between us and nobody else. Yeah, right. no one's listening. It's fine. It's good. Oh, this is hard because you're gonna you're gonna ask me follow up questions after this. And I'm gonna hesitate to answer, but anyway, I'll put this out there. 
So You, Me and the Sea is fan fiction. So I, I can't really claim full responsibility for Fraser because he kind of exists in another plane, in another universe, and Rachel does too. And, and you're not going to tell us which, are you? No. Oh. I love a bit of fan fiction. <laughs> there, there are clues in the acknowledgements for those that, that know what they're looking at. But I, I, it's, it, fan fiction is a tricky one, isn't it? And it's not, I have, I have no, I don't think you should have any shame with fan fiction because I think a lot of it is brilliant. And I am mm. grateful for all the fan fictions that I've read. But the thing with fan fiction is it's much, much more personal than normal writing. And I don't know why. It's like revealing your ultimate fantasy to the world, isn't it? It's like, yeah. this is what I think yeah. when I should be yeah. working and I'm thinking about other things. Um, but yeah, so there you go. Oh, this is going to end in you blocking me because I'm going to be messaging you being like, is it this? Is it this? Is it this? And you'll never tell me and you'll get annoyed with me soon. Okay, you'll you'll see. If you have a, have a look at the acknowledgements, you'll, you'll work it out from that. Oh my God, okay. I'm excited. Okay. Well, I'm doing after this. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've got so many questions now. Excellent. Yeah. That's kind um, of thrown you off, hasn't it? Yeah. Well, my my mind's going a mile a minute. Definitely going to be my next book to read. Clearly. Um, I was throwing my headset off and going get my book copies. Like flicks to me. Yeah. yeah. I'll, wait. I'll wait. I'll be patient. Yeah. I, I've got quite a random question actually, but mm-hmm. I was thinking about it just now. Um, do you have a connection with Scotland? Because obviously, um, Stuart was Scottish in in Darkest was, Corner. Yes, that's right. I've forgotten Scottish about that. Island. Um, yeah. Is it just? Uh, oh. No, not really. I mean, I've, I've always, I've loved Scotland. My first boyfriend was Scottish. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's really got anything to do with it. I mean, he took me on a grand tour of Scotland um, 30 years ago. Um, but I've always, I've always had a really, a, a real soft spot for Scotland. And um, I've got some great friends up there. And there are some amazing librarians and bookshops in Scotland who have, who have, helped me out enormously in the past so maybe that's what it is but yeah yeah I'd like to live there but I don't like being cold so I probably that's an won't. issue yeah <laughs> little nippy up there and maybe also I think as well and this is maybe a sweeping generalization the Scottish accent is beautiful isn't it, it, On is, a- isn't it? Mm. Mm, very much so it's always going to be instantly make someone much more attractive if they have a nice soft Scottish I think so mm, yeah can relate to that I need to um move away from this horny line of questioning now Sarah I, I, and there's always a risk with this that I end up oversharing so as soon as I heard your podcast before when I listened in to you talking to Chris I was thinking you yeah, know I'd love to do that but I would I would have to be really careful because I have got a tendency to overshare so just I do promise if there's anything you want cut out after Sarah literally does it to me every episode wait can you go back and cut this out yeah just let yeah me- yeah <laughs> But we love oversharing, but <laughs> I, we also will happily edit out anything you don't want in. So. Fair enough, thank you. Yeah, so you can tell us, like, I don't know, the fan fiction bases, and that could be cut out, I'm just saying. <laughs> I share? kind of want to do the puzzle now. I want to go and read and see if I can work it out from the... The, the thing is, the though, there's a risk that it will be horrendously disappointing. Because no. it's like that, you know, when you have um, people say, oh, who would you cast in in the in the film version of your books and you know as a as a writer you've always got quite a clear idea of who who your characters are and what they look like but the minute you translate that into an actual real human for somebody else it kind of I think it sometimes ruins it for you for other people because you'll have in your head who you think these people are and if I say something else it'd be like oh really you know and then there's that book kind of ruined for you I think it's that it's that personalization with the fan fiction, like you say, because you it's in yeah. mind very clear and yeah. Moving on to a slightly different topic, my favorite question from the last interview: What book would you be buried with? Oh, now I had to think about this one, and I would need several if that's all right. Okay, sure. that's fine. There's no rules. It would As be you said, with, line the coffin with it. It'd be fine. It would it would be very heavy, and I'm heavy enough as it is, but it would be. <laughs> My teenage diaries. I'm looking over there because they're there on the shelf. I've got all of yeah. them going Amazing. back to 1986. And so the safest thing for them to, to, to happen is, is they can come in the coffin with me and nobody needs <laughs> ever read. What That's I've probably sensible. <laughs> Self-preservation. <laughs> and destroying the evidence at the same time. Perfect. Definitely. 
yeah no one's going to go in after that <laughs> <laughs> um so then our other slightly audible question what would your death row meal be I've been pondering this one and I don't know I mean I could give the sensible answer and say you know steak and salad but I think it would probably just be a jar of Nutella and a spoon that would probably <laughs> be the ultimate if I, if I can have anything why not why not that's a pretty good pick I mean I say that as someone who hates Nutella but I can appreciate most people would agree with that <laughs> I, I could appreciate the honesty about it as well because I think people t- when they yeah. answer have to be like try and sound fancy or like this you know exquisite taste everything but you just want a jar of Nutella you want a jar of Nutella respect I'm gonna need some comforting if it's my death row meal aren't I yeah 100%. yeah and-, and it won't matter if I feel sick definitely not very true oh so positive love it (laughs) that's the spirit to jump back a little bit to uh the crime genre in general and writing and things like that um what typical crime genre trope are do you are you a bit sick of or do you kind of hate when you read it get a bit disappointed when it shows up in a book um i i struggle quite a lot with police procedurals because you know working for the police and stuff and it's hard because you know, a book can be really brilliant in terms of plot and characterization, And then the police stuff throws me out of the story and it can be tiny little things. And I think I, I struggle then to, to in, enjoy the rest of it. And, you know, occasionally I manage to get over that. And um, there are some brilliant examples where, you know, there have been little things and I've just loved the book so much. And then there have been other ones. Of, so foreign police stories, I'm fine with because obviously their procedure could be anything. I wouldn't know. Um, so they can get away with anything. Um, but yeah, it's it's little things like, oh, for example, police officers generally don't get promoted for doing a good job. They do exams and and promotion boards and then they get promoted. So if you if you got a sergeant to an inspector they'll have done the osprey exams or whatever they're called now and little things like that you know they solve a murder get a new job and no don't happen like that yes police officers telling people things in interviews um they don't do that they just ask the questions um and I, i know it's silly because you know I don't know what the percentage is of people who read crime books are are actually police officers or have got knowledge of police procedure, but it must be tiny, really, compared to the general population. So the vast majority of people will read these books and absolutely love them. And I almost wish I could do that sometimes and just, you know, put that little bit aside and, and, and read quite happily without spotting those things. It must be quite jarring, though, when you've spent your work life immersed in that business arena um yeah it's yeah, quite annoying it really really it's, it makes me sound like a bit of a knob doesn't it but <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't what I was thinking <laughs> but it, I you all. know I love I love them I love reading I love reading crime books but if if it's a procedural I sort of go into it a little hesitantly with a big old pinch of salt yeah yes um, but that's a, actually that's an interesting point. So looking back at the bio I read out for you earlier, so you've had a very interesting career path, right? So you studied English, German, and art history at uni, and then yeah. you got a, then you started working as a police intelligence analyst. Like, well, I had a few jobs before that. I mean, I I sold cars. Um, I uh, sold drugs as well. I was a drugs rep in Peckham and various. <laughs> oh, <places>. really <laughs> glad you elaborated. Yeah, heroin. Um, hay fever drugs, hay fever, <laughs> hay fever menopause, and um, hay fever menopause. What was the other big thing? I used to, oh, um, asthma medication. Uh, yeah, I did think you were being very uh, the oversharing thing when you <laughs> maybe <laughs> don't so your casually slipped past, in. <laughs> no judgment, but you know, no. yeah. <laughs> on the mean streets of Peckham and Camberwell with my asthma medication <laughs> in the booth. <laughs> Well, I imagine the pollen count's terrible, so that's useful to have. Yes, <laughs> yes. and so it was, a, it was quite an interesting journey to get to the police from there. But yes, and, and printing consumables, I was selling printing consumables and I saw this job advertised for um, the police training college in Kent and they were looking for somebody to run their training courses, you know, like booking teas and coffees and making sure they got enough chairs in the rooms and things like that. And I thought that sounds like a really good idea. And um, I managed to get that job and I went into it thinking because I hadn't written anything proper then, but I, I'd always read crime fiction and loved it and always written like love stories. 
and I'd always wanted to write crime, but I'd never had that um, feeling of being able to be authentic because I thought, well, I don't know anything about working for the police. It's going to, I'd have to research it. And how would I do that? I'd have to speak to people. That would be awful. <laughs> um, so when I went there on my first day, I remember thinking, oh, maybe I could write crime now. But actually the police training college is quite divorced from actual policing. It's, it's sort of a, a faux reality really where you don't see any actual criminals or see any actual crime. So it took me a little while before I could get into the actual juicy stuff. Wow, it set you on the path though. And that's- it did, yes. Yeah. Amazing. God. All right, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm still thrown from the drug dealer confession. <laughs> That's where, she gets, that's where she gets the edge from for her stories. Gotta, you know. Yeah, I mean, that would yeah. be a novel, an author with a drug dealing habit on the side. Yes. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> oh, you've got to supplement that income. I think people think that you write a book and you suddenly become very rich and successful. And I, from what I've been hearing from other authors, like it's a real, it's a hard work to get. To get it the- is. It is definitely. And I mean, I, I was lucky enough to get a lot of foreign rights deals for Into the Darkest Corner. And I'm not I'm not exaggerating when I say I've been living off that ever since in, in the sense of, you know, I've got eight books out there and they've all been really well reviewed. And people have said lovely things about all of them, but none of them came close to enough income to let me live off them apart from Into the Darkest Corner. So I'll be forever grateful for that book and forever grateful for everybody that bought it. Well, I've got my copy here. So there it is. Oh, well done already. Do you have a favourite book or is that like asking you to pick a favourite child? I think got different favourites for different reasons. I mean, as I say, I'm really grateful to Into the Darkest Corner because that's enabled me to have this fantastic life farting around for the last 10 years. You know, I've I've, I've been tremendously privileged because of that. Um, I'm, I like You, Me and the Sea because, you know, I've, I've really enjoyed writing it and having living that fantasy for a little while. <laughs> Um, but I think my favourite is probably Harriet, which is um, actually is, is Murder of Harriet Monkton is the title, which was the one before You, Me and the Sea, which is a historical cold case fictionalisation, um, which kind of came out of nowhere, really. But I found this unsolved case in the National Archives and had this tremendous feeling that I had to find out who did it and uh, spent a year researching and trying to work out using all my police techniques who who had actually killed Harriet Monkton and uh yeah so I fictionalized it but you know nobody had written about Harriet apart from the odd bit of local history true crime and I really wanted her to be remembered because 176 years later or however long it's been nobody nobody knew about her and you know she lived and breathed and suffered this horrendous death and had all been forgotten about so that's I think that's the one I'm most proud of really because I'm not Mm. a natural historical author Mm. um and I wanted Harriet to be remembered and I'm hoping that's what I've managed to do with that book yeah amazing you talked yourself earlier about how much you love reading and obviously you read a lot I think everybody on listening to this hopefully reads a lot as well but what was the last book that you read and loved the last one I read, and I've recommended this to everybody, was Things in Jars by Jess Kidd. Ooh. Not read it. Okay. Not read no, it? I haven't oh. either, no. Oh, well, you've got a treat coming your way. So um, it's the most amazing character called Bridie Divine, who is a... What a um, name. A, I know. Late <laughs> Victorian woman who's grown up with a resurrectionist ward I suppose what's the what's the word for somebody who's looking after you who's not actually a parent anyway she grows up with this sort of backstreet resurrectionist and as a result she's got this affinity with anatomy and dead bodies and so the the police call upon her to effectively be a forensic pathologist before such things existed and go and go and look at bodies and tell them what what's happened and along the way very early I'm not giving anything away by saying this because it's in the first chapter she comes across a dead boxer by the name of Ruby Doyle, um, who's this, if he's a ghost, she can see through him, but he just kind of tags along and warns her when someone's sneaking up behind her and things like that. But he, the way he's drawn is this sort of pugilist with saggy drawers and a hat tilted at a comical angle with this amazing handlebar moustache. 
and a little bit the worse for wear and he's just sort of follows her around and looks after her and it's just amazing oh I love (laughs) that it's so beautifully written and the it's it's the most incredible story I think you'll love it I loved it brilliant I love I love stories like that because on, when you started describing it, it sounded like you know obviously Victorian, very gritty kind of like. But then you tell about a ghost, like a guardian angel boxer ghost. Like I love yeah. weird twists like that. Like I don't know if you've read um, the Last House on Needless Street. Um, yes. Oh my yeah. goodness me. That book. I mean, Sarah, you've not read that yet, but you have. No. Because yeah, I really enjoyed. Oh. It. I, I love how weird it was. There's so much weirdness within it, and the characters. There's, there's chapters narrated by a cat. Yes. And Somebody, uh, I think it was Miranda who sent me a copy of the book to read. She said to me, "You know, when the cat starts talking, just go with it." Yes. <laughs> it's like the best of adv- best of advice, really, because you you do you have to sort of rein it in at that point. And think, hang on, something yeah. weird here. Yeah, but that's, it's so fun when books surprise you like that. It, it is. Yeah, because it's so rare to hear something completely fresh and and weird and wonderful in yes. this many books. There were, uh, the Last House on Needless Street was one I was recommending a lot last year. And the one I was recommending alongside it was The Lamplighters by Emma Stonex, which I read about the same time. And you know when you get two books or you read a really good book and you think, oh, I've got the worst hangover now. Nothing's ever going to compare to that. And then you read another one. It's like, wow, here we go. And I read <laughs> those two back to back. Um, and obviously I was on a bit of a lighthouse kick at the time because I was I was writing You Mean the Sea or just finished it. So anything with a lighthouse in, you know, um, I was going for. But um, The Lamplighters was amazing. That's another one I can highly recommend. I haven't read that either. I need to add these to the list. Um, it's based, well, it's inspired by um, the Flannan, Flannan Isles lighthouse where three lighthouse keepers disappeared mysteriously in, Ooh. I think it was 1890, something like that. They just vanished, leaving behind, you know, a cook, it's like the Mary Celeste had cooked dinner and everything else was just left behind. They just disappeared. And Emma Stonex sort of took that as inspiration and has set it in the 1970s and three lighthouse keepers disappear and it's the story of what leads up to it and what ha- oh it's brilliant really good oh you've sold it to me oh I've got Definitely. some shopping to do after this and also thank you, for t- thank you for telling me how to pronounce her surname because I've always been nervous to say it out loud Stonex well I'm hoping that's right I've not had to say it out loud before either <laughs> well that's it now we've set the tone so that's what she's now referred to as as far as I'm concerned you're you're yeah. right about most things so Sorry, Emma, if you're listening and I've got that wrong. She'll probably listen in now because we've mentioned her, won't she? I'll yeah. tag her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Start my harassment of her to try and get her on the podcast next. Oh, <laughs> you know what? She should. Emma, if you're it, really seriously, you must do it because then I can listen in and hear all about how you wrote the, light, the lamp lighters. <laughs> and how to pronounce her name. <laughs> yes. yes. I'll be like, Emma, why don't you introduce yourself? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> listen to how she says it but this is what I love about these interviews I, I generally find it so fascinating to hear because obviously we, Sarah and I both read this a while ago so obviously just read it like I, I've loved it so much I'm so thank you so much for your time to come and talk to us about this because it truly is a, a, such an incredible book and obviously one of the reasons why it's done so well is because it's so incredible so uh, yeah. I'm excited to read all of your back catalogue which I haven't read all of it but I want to desperately and like I said, you mean the sea. I think what I find when I when I really love a book and I know I really love it is when I'm excited to get into bed and read it every night. You know, when you get books, sometimes you're like, oh, I have to read that. I have to finish that book. And it's a bit of a slog. Mm. It's such a it's such a joy when you get when you're like, I'm excited to get into bed and read this now. This is what I'm looking forward to for the rest of the day. That's really good. I won't overshare anymore, but I know what you please. mean. No, please do. <laughs> We can cut it out. <laughs> Frankie's little ears pricking up. Yes. <laughs> no, 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 no. I was just sort of thinking of, you know, the, the fruity bits. But anyway. Oh, I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I'm right there with you. <laughs> when we're talking about editorial decisions, just quickly going back to that. Yeah. Um, I had a lot more in, a lot more. And, and it was like, you know, less is more, Elizabeth. Just rein it in a little bit. And um, they, there's not a lot of build up to it. And you know she wanted me to take out everything of part one so there was no build-up and then part two here we go right we're we're into the 
into the saucy bits now. Um, and I found that really, really hard because there needed to be a little bit of a hint of a suggestion in the early yeah. bits, but actually, no, they, a lot of it came out. And and I think that's better, really, because it does kind of come as a bit of a shock, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was a very welcome surprise, though. I was very yeah. pleased. As, a, as apparently, I'm making myself sound like some complete pervert, but I really... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, everyone knows that listening already. Um, but I, uh, I, I appreciated it. I think that, but you did it in. Obviously, there is a, there is a lot of sex in the book, but it's it's not in a gratuitous, like sordid sort of way. It, it, it's within a, a, a. You can feel the love within it. It's not just. I think. Yeah, yeah, I think it's real. So. Yeah, yes. yeah. I thought as well. I think it was really nice the way you. I think maybe this is because you're writing it as a woman. The way you describe like her body and things, and obviously I'm not going to spoil anything, but she's been through things in her life that have made her body a certain way. And I think like to hear those details is so refreshing because often when you read books when there are sex scenes, then everyone's perfect and chiselled, and you know. I think yeah, no, no, I can't be doing with any of that. I mean. It- also, I mean, there's a, there's a certain element of fantasy where you want it to be attractive, but people are phenomenally attractive without being a certain Instagram way, aren't they? I mean, I mm. think everybody's bodies are incredibly beautiful and it's, it, it's just nice to have a little opportunity to celebrate the seeing each other as beautiful, even when you actually describe them they're clearly not perfect but they're still absolutely adorable just as they are I think and I think honestly I think a lot of men really do think that way as well I think we we always assume that men are expecting women to look like Instagram models or like you know page three models and be perfect something but I think men like real like bodies they're generally just grateful for the experience (laughs) (laughs) they're gonna be very happy with whatever you present to them (laughs) I think yeah and you know um oh god I've lost my train of thought now because I've gone into the gratitude but I thought that was that was really true (laughs) I I think yeah um oh no it's gone it was good sorry Oh, my no, no, don't worry. Don't worry. It's just great. We've got these grateful men <laughs> just to be happy <laughs> with a woman. <laughs> Wonderful. Oh, no, that's what I was going to say. Thank goodness. Thank goodness men don't all want chiseled Instagram beauties, eh? Otherwise, where would we be? Not looking at you two, but looking at myself. Really. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, obviously, under this, I'm incredibly chiseled and Instagram worthy. But no, I completely, that's the thing. That's what makes, as you said, everyone's so beautiful in their own way. They have different lids for different pots, is the saying? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. For every lock, there's a key. Oh, so many metaphors that work for this. <laughs> exactly. Oh, it's been so much fun talking to you, Elizabeth. Yeah. I know I could do this forever. It's been great fun. Thank you for having me on. Oh, hey, thank you. Really appreciate it. And hopefully one day we'll all meet up on the island and uh, have a really good time. Yeah, or in the bar at Harrogate. That's the other good place. Oh, I really hope That's so. True. Yeah, yeah. 2023. Well, actually, I'm going to say for people that are listening now, um, if you are going to be at Harrogate Crime Writing Festival in 2022 in July, I'm going to be there by myself, um, <laughs> probably looking very sad and lonely in a corner. So if anybody's listening is going, please do come and say hi to me because I would really like to speak to you. And I was hoping Elizabeth was going to come, but she's she can't do it this year. So next year we're going to meet up. Next year. But I was saying, Frankie, you should definitely be there with a microphone and uh, a podcast and live record authors at about half 11 in the bar is usually a really good time to ask them searing questions and you'll get some incredible answers. This is the most calls for editing I'll ever get. Probably, I thought Sarah was bad. People are like, can you cut out the entire conversation? Vague <laughs> memories of what you what I said, and yeah, that's a really good idea. Though I'm definitely going to take take the recorder along and see what I can get. Well, I'm excited to listen now. I'm a field I'm a field reporter now, Sarah. I'm out in the fields. I always knew you could do it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> But, say thank you so much Elizabeth it's been so lovely to speak to you um and I can't wait to you mean the sea is next on my list now yeah everyone li- and for everyone listening go out and buy all of Elizabeth's books and tell her how great she is on social media what are your handles so people can follow you so uh, at Eliz J Haynes on Twitter is where I'm most most likely to be hanging out I've got Instagram but I've never really kind of got the hang of that one so I was looking at your pictures. Instagram do you you have a dog though 
Oh, I've got two. I've got two. Yes, they're they're Spanish rescue dogs. They're Pedencos, so they're like little foxy things. Foxy, foxy with huge ears, right? Huge ears. Yes. And one of them is an absolute princess of a dog. She's a diamond, and the other one is a complete liability. Um, <laughs> so there are pictures of him looking, doing stupid things on there. Oh, Sarah's got Sarah's got a stupid dog as well, haven't you, Sarah? <laughs> I've got a very stupid, very old dog. Bless him. Oh, yeah. what sort of dog is he? He's a golden retriever, and he's about oh. to turn fourteen. <gasps> oh my goodness! Yeah, he's, he's a good on, um... boy. He's on Xanax, isn't he? Or is he, still- he is, yes. It takes nightly Xanax to deal with his nerves. <laughs> oh, my goodness. He's, he's fine. He's 14, then. Yeah. yeah, no, he is. He's a, he's a good little... Well, he's not little. He's pretty massive, but he's a good boy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, anyway, we'll let you go, Elizabeth. Sorry, we keep finding things to talk about. But thank you so much. And- thank you both. Yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. Um, and let us know of any other authors you want us to get on, and we can start with Elizabeth's help. Yes. Until they join us. Um, and yeah. Follow us on all our social channels at Red and Buried Podcast. That's what they are, isn't it? Yep. Sarah, yep. As you can tell, Sarah's very active in the social promotion of the podcast. <laughs> so thanks, everyone. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Elsewhere on We Made This Academy Watch a prestige film podcast. A lot of these other characters that are not human have these oh, bizarre names, non-Anglo names. And then we have Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I kind of wanted a Brian or a Gary to rock up next to him as well. Uh, yeah, like, like a Gary, like a real like Scouse guy from... <laughs> Uh, I was about to do a Scouse accent, but then I thought better of it. Yeah, let's let's leave the Scouse. We've already offended the Pauls. Let's let's leave the let's leave the Garys alone. Pick a disc. Everyone was sort of caught up in the the cowboyness of the post 9-11 world like to, to an extent in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 George W. Bush basically took on the role of John Wayne he was like I'm going to find them and I'm going to catch them and uh, I'm going to put them to justice that sort of thing and I think for a long while the, that had kind of been accepted and that was okay you can lead us forward you know what you're doing and then you know some other things began happening and other wheels started turning and that's where I think this album managed to land was there were a load of people that were thinking about is this right should we be doing this and it kind of validated that school of thought because it said it in such an eloquent way and it's it's very very pointed at you know its administrations and its its message of anti-war not necessarily anti this war but anti all wars right in the childhood there's oh, other boy bands include the likes of mcfly I remember McFly. McFly busted. They, McFly was shit busted. Oh, that's a controversial. I could name five or eight. Well, three oh, or four. Oh, here we go, because I'm a big busted in McFly. I could name fan. three or four busted songs. I could name you no McFly songs. Name, name me some busted Year 3000. Shit me, I could have, I'm sure I know more than Year 3000. Glad I crashed a wedding. Oh uh, yeah, that one. Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This podcast network. Mm-hmm.